I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part two in the series, Season of the Spirit, Season of the Flesh. A spiritual exercise to accompany this teaching can be found at vancity.church slash season of the spirit. Amidst all the political infighting, mask wars, and social media posturing, an ugly, often dormant gene of human selfishness is being aggravated in the human condition. But the first listed fruit of the Spirit is love, and love is about others. How do we embrace benevolent outward love in a time of great selfishness? If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 in the New Testament. Galatians is a letter we're going to spend a good bit of time in in the coming weeks, particularly one unique passage that has formed the thinking of disciples of Jesus for centuries. In Galatians 5, verse 22, we read the beginning of a beautiful and complicated list. Paul writes, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Selfishness, we know, is bad. On this, few people disagree, at least outwardly. But selfishness is a tangling poison that coils around human DNA. We want the things we want to be comfortable and happy and uninhibited, but we often want them with complete disregard for other people or even at their expense. It's how we go on shopping for certain things when we know we contribute to slavery and oppression around the world or eating certain things when we know we're destroying the environment or abusing creation because we think, at least subconsciously, so what? We want the things we want. Or consider for a moment something not divisive whatsoever, masks in the time of coronavirus. We're all wearing them at the moment. It frustrates many to admit this, but there's still a lot we don't really know about COVID-19 and the epidemic. Some of the things that we assume turn out to be incorrect while others proved more accurate. The actual data is routinely embellished and or ignored by hyperbolic journalism and social media hysterics catered to and depending on your political preferences. You click the way you'd like to be angry that day and the news delivers. But look at it this way, there are experts who claim that wearing masks, though it won't keep you from getting sick, will likely reduce the risk of making other people sick. Wearing a mask can be in some ways, I guess, sort of inconvenient, but it's mostly a non-issue. They're readily available, they're inexpensive or free, and they change very little about our life experience. At worst, a minor discomfort. I think we all look pretty cool, personally, but that's just me. So the powers that be announced, look, everyone just needs to wear a mask, all right? And Americans went ballistic. Why do I have to wear a mask in public? What if I don't want to wear a mask in public? Are we really entirely 100% positive that masks do anything? Prove it. No one can make me do anything. Now, you'd think that the equation would be fairly straightforward. Even if you're not convinced that masks are effective, if other people in the know suggest that they even might be It's such a low ask that we might as well wear them. Worst case scenario, masks feel funny sometimes. Best case scenario, we make other people more safe. Great. Now, much as I hate to say it, which isn't much now that I think of it, this uh, Doge meme actually illustrates the issue fairly well. Look at this. 
Jesus and the early Christians, persecuted, martyred by a corrupt government for the sake of the gospel, you'll notice that he's quite buff. And then on the other hand, you have Christians in 2020, masky, ouchie. Look, and he's kind of pudgy and has tears running down his eyes. Now, obviously, we don't want to reduce people to stereotypes, but the we refuse to wear masks camp is often depicted as... Kaylee, you got to get the meme out of here now. I'm sorry. I can see it in my peripheral vision. It's going to make me laugh. <laughs> the, the we refuse to wear masks people in the stereotypical sense is often depicted at least as those on the political right or, you know, like the militant anti-vax Instagram moms or something like whatever. So the other caricature on the other side of the aisle is all gasp, clutching their pearls. How could anyone be so selfish? But then I thought, wait a minute, isn't this the same crowd, the same group that has famously insisted, follow your own truth, regardless of the effects that it has on other people or the world around you? Whatever you feel is true must be honored regardless of facts or fallout. But these are obviously extremes. They're hyperbolic. What if you haven't been filmed screaming at other Trader Joe's shoppers or have yet to run swinging into the writhing snake pit of social media pandemic politics. Most of us, I, I wager a guess anywhere, anyway, are still somewhere in the middle, and we still, in the middle, we still want what we want. The other day, a friend of mine asked how I was doing during all this, you know, the normal question, but with a, a little more behind it, how are you doing in all this? And I told him, you know, relatively well, all things considered, uh, most of my gripes, I told him, are just inconveniences. Now, feeling inconvenienced doesn't indicate that you're a selfish monster, but I realized as I was telling my friend this, and I had said it several times before then, that it reveals a dark, often dormant gene in us. Now, for some of us who are less spiritually formed or less mature in our discipleship, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. All of us were there at one point. Uh, or for those of us who are not operating in community with others, with accountability and support, the selfish aspect of our brokenness is less beaten back. It's less mastered. It's more on the surface. It's more brash. Now, that doesn't mean that your personality is brash per se. It could be very meek. It just means that some of us wear our brokenness more on our sleeve for the world to see. For those further along in spiritual formation who are open to correction and repentance in community, who are working actively toward maturity, the selfish human tendency can be overpowered and on a moment-by-moment -moment basis overcome. But that it has to be battled at all reminds us of our brokenness. Something is not right inside. We want things the way we want them, and we don't like things that we don't want to do. The world is broken, and so are we. So far, this comes, I hope, as little surprise to anyone. Now, when we experience trauma or crises or stress, all of us, the mature to the immature, experience a kind of pressure. And we are under that pressure. And when we are, we are like sponges. It doesn't matter if there's a lot of water or only a little bit. With enough pressure, what's inside is coming out. You all know this. You know all about it. Sometimes it's petty and it's easily rectified. An argument with a spouse or a bad attitude at community or with your friends or impatience with your children. It happens to everyone. But it can also be bigger things, darker things, spiritual restlessness or giving into temptation or fear or anxiety 
or retreat, bailing out, fleeing from community and accountability, aimlessness, frustration, despair. It's putting up a veneer of wellness around death and decay and saying, I'm doing great, things are just fine. All of these things are inward focused. They are narrow and vain or selfish. And that's in all of us. God knows it's in me. Even though, as I've said, things have been relatively smooth for me personally. I know many people for whom the pandemic and everything around it has been much worse. I've still managed to lose my patience, at times been petty or aggravated, had to apologize to my kids, had to apologize to my wife. I've felt wayward or aimless or frustrated with things not going the way I want them to go. And the New Testament is painfully aware of this tendency, which is why many fruits of the flesh, as it were, are relational in nature. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. All of these things are selfish. They look to take rather than to give. My friend Bethany keeps joking, these surely are the last days. She says it all the time. Because that's a phrase that we grew up hearing. It was a phrase that was decorated by images of war and apocalypse and tribulation and the Antichrist. But look at the way one New Testament author describes the last days or the end times. He says this, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Oh God, that sounds scary. What's it going to be like? People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Now know that these terrible last days that Timothy describes all flow from this first declaration that people will be lovers of themselves, an apocalypse of selfishness. This is the world in which we live. And 2020 seems more than ever the season of the self. All our collective outrage and exasperation, much of it justified and understandable, yet flows from the well of self. Self is the air we breathe, the banner of our you-do-you culture, Instagram, Diet Coke, hashtag, do what makes you happy. In a 2015 op-ed, Colson Whitehead repurposed a famous and ancient fable to explain this paradigm. He said, you'll recall the fable of the scorpion and the frog. The scorpion needs a ride across the river. The waters are rising on account of climate change or perhaps has been, he's been priced out of his burrow. Who knows? The exact reason is lost in the fog of pre-modernity. The frog is afraid that the scorpion will sting him, but his would-be passenger reassures him that they would both die if that happened. That would be crazy. Sure enough, halfway across, the scorpion stings the frog. Just before they drown, the scorpion says, aren't you going to ask why I did that? And the frog croaks, you do you. The laughable... Untenable, thank you, thank you for that. The laughable untenability of the you do you ideology notwithstanding, we were not made for ourselves. You and I were actually created from and for outward projecting love. It was love 
that compelled the father and his creative artistry to fashion for himself companions and collaborators. And it was with love that he designed us for himself and for one another when he famously said, it is not good for human beings to be alone. But in the Bible story, the project of creative love has been vandalized by evil. Humanity has been led astray, and as a result, that good and innate design to love and be loved is bent backward, collapsing in on itself. Infamous fire and brimstone preacher Jonathan Edwards actually described this concept really well. This is a big quote, but trust me, you're going you're gonna to make it. Hang in there. It's a two-slider. You'll be fine. The ruin that the fall brought upon the soul of man consists very much in his losing the nobler and more benevolent principles of his nature and falling wholly under the power of government and go the power and government of self-love. Before, and as God created him, he was exalted and noble and generous, but now he is debased and ignoble and selfish. Immediately upon the fall, the mind of man shrank from its primitive greatness and expandedness to an exceeding smallness and contractedness. And as in other respects, so especially in this. Before, his soul was under the government of that noble principle of divine love, whereby it was enlarged to the comprehension of all his fellow creatures and their welfare. And not only so, but it was not confined with such narrow limits as the bounds of the creation, but went forth in the exercise of holy love to the creator and abroad upon the infinite ocean of good and was, as it were, swallowed up by it and became one with it. But so soon as he had transgressed against God, these noble principles were immediately lost and all this excellent enlargedness of man's soul was gone. And thenceforward, he himself shrank, as it were, into a little space, circumscribed and closely shut up within itself to the exclusion of all things. We were made for generous, noble, self-sacrificial love, goodness that generates within by the light and love of God and then radiates outward to all of creation made manifest in benevolent concern for other people, for friends, for strangers, even enemies, for communities and culture, for the environment and the animal kingdom. But our freedom to choose other than God's will has enabled us to direct that love back in on itself so that we can follow our own preferences and broken sense of self-preservation with little to no regard for others. That is in us. The way of Jesus draws our attention not only to our own warped souls, it does, but it also draws our attention to God's good purpose for our souls in the beginning. Jesus is inviting us back into what God intended. And that's what spiritual formation is all about. The thing is, most of us navigate this long and often difficult road of spiritual formation, sort of like remodeling a house. When you come to faith in Jesus, Initially, there's this tremendous overhaul that happens. Lots of changes, lots of figuring things out, learning, replacing things, removing things. And eventually, you hit a stride, and there's less of the extreme round-the-clock renovation. But the process never really ends. As the years wear on, you discover new things in need of repair. An outlet fails, a fuse erupts, a pipe leaks, something breaks, something falls on a roof or shatters a window. And those setbacks and complications come with the ebb and flow of time. 
As Rocky Balboa wisely warned Adonis Creed, time takes everyone out, it's undefeated. But more often, those ruptured pipes and smoking fuses are the traumatic things of life, not just time, but events, stress, anxiety, major change, sickness, death, relational fallout. Now, unlike the ordinary unfolding of time that wears on a house, the pressure of stress and trauma is like a storm that comes down and batters and bruises the house, setting off a chain reaction, revealing all sorts of broken and defective things inside. You had no idea were there at all. One pipe dribbles, and when you open the wall, you realize the entire system is corroded and soon to collapse. And that's where we are at the moment as a culture. The world is in crisis, and the crisis doesn't care what you think about it. Crisis doesn't care if you're skeptical or if you're terrified. It doesn't care whether you suspect conspiracy or if you want the world to stay in lockdown forever. The crisis is here and we have no idea when it'll let up. We're all dealing with crisis in different ways. It's easier on some of us than others, but for all of us, there is pressure on the soul and pressure reveals priorities. Michael J. Kruger, a professor of the New Testament early Christianity, said of the pandemic, nothing tests the validity of a worldview like tragedy and suffering. And the coronavirus, as awful and terrible as it is, has done at least one good thing. Namely, it has exposed our culture's commitment to relativism, you do you, what works for you works for you, for what it really is, an utterly unworkable and unsustainable worldview. Selfishness is well publicized these days, and it seems to be erupting like horrible geysers on both sides of the political spectrum in an awful clamoring scramble for the moral high ground in the season of the virus. So we watch as middle-aged white women bark and scream in grocery aisles. A woman in Florida who refused to wear a mask inside a Pier 1 store deliberately approached and coughed on another customer who was filming her. But then representing the other camp, not wanting them to be left out. A woman in San Jose became frustrated with another customer at a yogurt land for not maintaining proper social distance. So she pulled down her mask and she deliberately coughed on the offending woman's one-year-old in a stroller. There's East Coasters that are refusing to stay in lockdown, crowding beaches and parks, maskless and uncaring, while West Coasters refuse to leave their homes even when the state says that you can do so, condemning anyone and everyone not adhering to a rigid rule book of their own design. One side judges the other for the rule-following legalism and paranoia, and the other side judges back, arguing it's not enough to follow the guidelines set by doctors and the government. You have to do more than that, or you're a monster. My wife Abby was in line outside Ikea recently wearing a mask, as was the protocol, when a perturbed bystander growled at the crowd saying, you all look ridiculous wearing your masks outside. Meanwhile, someone else was, I'm sure, mad that Ikea was open at all. It is Lord of the Flies out there, y'all. Be careful, man. And sure, we're not exactly at our best in these types of situations, but that's exactly the point. Applied pressure and what's inside ekes out. Behind all the arguing about masks and distances and who opened too soon and who isn't opening soon enough, there's a deep-seated human selfishness, a black snake coiled in our hearts whispering, I am entitled to what I want. 
others should bow to what I think is best and how it affects others is beside the point that I want what I want. So what do we do? I think that we have to assess what's in us and be honest about it. When there's a leak, a wall has to come down to see what's really inside. And sometimes the work ahead is more than we want to do. Pressure reveals priorities, for better or for worse. Maybe you've known someone or, or you've experienced this firsthand, the way that certain seasons of trauma compel you into the arms of God. When things get bad and you're driven to prayer and to worship and dependence, and in the midst of something awful, you move closer to God than you were before when everything was fine. But that's not always the case. In times of crisis, we also allow the selfishness within to seize control of our wayward souls. Sam Harris, who's a philosopher and outspoken atheist, he argued that even our concern for others is selfish in nature, saying this, the well-being of others, especially those closest to us, is, in one, is one of our primary and indeed most selfish interests, which sounds really weird, but you may recall this same debate unfolding between Phoebe Buffay and Joey Tribbiani. If you don't, it goes like this. Joey didn't believe that there could ever be a truly selfless act, and Phoebe was determined to prove him wrong. She went as far as allowing a bee to sting her, arguing that it, it would hurt her, but the bee would appear tough to his bee friends, thus a truly selfless act. She was deflated when Joey told her the bee probably died. But the logic of selfish compassion, that there's no such thing as a truly selfless act, is weirdly ever before us. Look at this Facebook ad encouraging pandemic safety measures. Help spread, the, you know, help prevent the spread of the coronavirus. When it comes to health, everyone wants best for themselves and their families. See the latest information, blah, 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 goes on. Everyone wants what's best for themselves and their families, not others, not those at risk, not the elderly, not the immune compromised, Everyone wants, first and foremost, what's best for themselves. Facebook absolutely knows their audience. Much has been said about pervasive misunderstandings surrounding our English word love and the American understanding of its meaning. So we illustrate the flimsiness of both by pointing out that we love our children and we love our closest friends, but we also love pizza. Love, for us, usually means positive feelings about something. But in the Bible, love might involve positive feelings. God certainly has positive feelings for us. But for us, in emulating the love of God as imperfect conduits of that power, positive feelings are neither here nor there. Look at this from 1 John 3. Dear friends, let us love one another. Love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. What is this love and how can we tell? Jesus said so in perhaps the simplest language available. If you love me, keep my commands. Not feel good things about something. Love is revealed by lifestyle. The two core realities presented here are that God sent his love to us and that it cost God something to send his love to us. That famous line from this passage, God is love, is constantly commandeered and repurposed to mean God is this soft, sentimental, positive energy that is never costly. God is love. He always approves of everything I say and do and want and thinks I'm so special and perfect just the way I am because God is love. But the love that is God goes up against the violent selfishness of humanity and bleeds and dies to bring life to the undeserving at expense to itself. It is not vague and sweet and sentimental. It costs. Costly love is not cheap. It can't be conjured into our lives with a Sunday evening prayer and a worship song and an emotional encounter. It cannot be bought with violence or enforced with legislation or bullied on social media. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is the outgrowth of the roots of our lives. Hence the words of Jesus, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in my love, Jesus says. As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. The antithesis of selfishness is to lay down one's life for others. God has pursued us. He sent his son. He loved us first. And we are the insecure lovers in this exchange, the wayward spouses. We fret and spin and worry that the steadiness of God's love is too good to be true, that surely it wavers or surely it bends or surely it breaks or surely we can exhaust it. And in our insecurity, our panic, our distrust, we turn to other things. Is God's love really reliable? Maybe this other thing will love me well. Maybe this other thing will distract me from my fretting and my worrying. I need something. One of the primary principles of abiding in the vine or remaining in Jesus is to embrace it, the love of Jesus, as an unchanging reality, to draw our attention back to this true thing again and again and again. No, this is true. This is constant. It does not waver. It does not go away. And we create rhythms of life that acknowledge this to be true again and again and again. Meaning, I love my wife and I believe that she loves me then I arrange my life in such a way as to live out the reality of this love with time, with energy, with words, with thinking, with feeling, and with actions on a regular basis. Pressure reveals priorities. Has the pressure of a world in crisis drawn you deeper into the reality of God's love, 
or has it pulled you away from it? Asked another way, where do the roots of your life, your soul, where do they reach out for nourishment in order to bear fruit? The world is changing, but the availability of God never does. We have all the same opportunities to come before God and to be empowered by his love as we did before the season of the virus. We often think of ourselves as hopeless before time and circumstances, but how you do and do not spend your time is entirely up to you. It's not about chores. It's not about work that you're doing to be a good Christian. Imagine if we treated the people we love that way. If we asked our spouses or our children or our closest friends, how much time must I dedicate to you in order to benefit from this relationship? And the graciousness of God is such that you don't have to begin tonight with hours of meditation and scripture just to find your way back into the nourishing presence of God's love. You just start somewhere. In this, the season of the spirit, during the season of the flesh, I want us to pause our ordinary rhythm of long Bible teachings and learning practices and communities. Instead, take on small spiritual exercises slowly in the quiet places of crisis. Each week, we'll recommend a small, quiet exercise. We'll offer a brief guide. We'll practice here together on Sunday, and we'll invite you into your own time of practice in the days of hell. This is an invitation to build into a rule of life or to build one from scratch in the time of pandemic. Tonight and this week, it's actually pretty simple. You can't psych yourself up to go live and self-sacrificial love. But it's in the radiant glory of self-sacrificial love that we become empowered over time to love others the same way. So the invitation is to sit with the text that we've read tonight. We're going to go back to it in just a few minutes and to meditate on it carefully. It's a small passage. Start your mornings this way. Just a few minutes of your time to read slowly, carefully, asking God to form you through the scriptures. It's not an end-all, be-all. It's starting somewhere. And then you ask a difficult question. Where am I not loving others as God loves me? And what would Jesus have me do about it? Ask are my motives out of sync with your will? Is the way I spend my time representative of self-sacrificial love? What decisions are you making during this season that he would have you rethink? Where have you been operating apart from his good and loving wisdom and direction? And then, rather than berate yourself with your own inadequacies and failures, you sit with the passage again and allow it to speak over you and form you. No wonder entire cultures and generations seem to have lost the romanticism of redemption, the great scandalous beauty of it. When we've done away with brokenness, redemption is a non-event. If the you-do-you ideology is right, that you're wonderful and whole and entirely beautiful and everything you want and say and do, then who needs rescuing? And from what? But if we are broken and bent and in desperate need of saving then the idea that the God of the universe has lowered himself down to the sub-levels of humanity to chase after and restore and redeem us from all the horrors of evil and suffering and hell, then the beauty 
of salvation is near incomprehensible. And when we make space for the power of that beauty to invade the ordinary and imperfect mundanity of our lives in quiet spaces to listen to the scriptures and pray and our joy and our suffering are all filtered through the lens of what God thinks about us and the world, then we will, moment by moment, day by day, learn to keep in step with the Spirit. And selfishness in the season of the flesh will be eclipsed by love as it becomes the season of the Spirit. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.